And so we close ourselves off from the cries of the poor. We're looking at a quote from Dorothy Day in this room. And she says, by crying out unceasingly for the rights of the workers, of the poor, of the destitute, we can throw our pebble in the pond and be confident that its ever-widening circle will reach ev- around the world. Mm. Um, if we are living lives that don't cry out for those who have less than us, we'll start to believe we're the, we're the poor ones, we're the impoverished ones, we're the oppressed ones. Um, we have to be in contact with this interdependent web of humanity um, in order to stay grateful, in order to be generous. Like it, this doesn't grow in isolation. Hello, dearest damn givers. Welcome to Let's Give a Damn, a podcast committed to sharing the stories of damn givers of all kinds and from all over the world. Today is December 25th. Well, if you're listening to this on the day that it releases, it's December 25th. So, Merry Christmas, Happy Holidays, Seasons Greetings, Happy Festivus for the rest of us. And if you don't celebrate anything on this day or during this season, I hope you're doing super, super well. Thank you all for joining me today. This is the final podcast episode of 2018 for Let's Give a Damn. I can't believe it's over already, and we are gearing up for 2019. I can't wait to show you what we're doing in 2019, but for now, I wanted to give you a little heads up on what you can look forward to in January. So on January 1, I'll release a recap of 2018. I'll share some of our favorite moments, my favorite moments, And I'll share uh, a little bit as well about what we're going to do in the next year. Super, super excited about 2019. That episode will contain a little bit of the vision. Then January is jam-packed full of great episodes, great conversations. Scott Hamilton, you know him, the retired American figure skater and Olympic gold medalist will be on the show. Claude Silver, chief happiness officer at VaynerMedia and Gary Vaynerchuk's number two person at the company will be on the show and so much more. It's going to be a great month. I wanted to give you those quick updates now because I know y'all don't listen to the end of the episodes. Shame, shame. Just kidding. I get it. Now for today's guests, plural guests, I planned for this conversation to release on the day that most people celebrate Christmas for a very specific reason. Today, we're going to chat, among other things, about the myth of scarcity and the liturgy of abundance. Today, we have one return guest and one new guest. So let me introduce them to you briefly before we get going with our conversation. My first guest is Father Danny Bryant, my pastor in the parish priest at St. Mary Bethany Parish in Nashville, Tennessee. He's a close friend and a trusted spiritual advisor. His friendship means so much to my family and to me. My second guest is Jason Adkins, urban farmer and professor at Trevecca University in Nashville, Tennessee. You may recognize that name because he was on the podcast a few months ago now. I got so much great feedback from that conversation. So if you haven't listened to that episode yet, stop this episode, go back, listen to that one, and then return to this one. It'll give you a little more context on who Jason is and where he's coming from with his viewpoints and his ideas and the work that he is committed to doing or do whatever you want, I'm not your parent. Go listen to this one right now if you want. On a day and during a season where most people want more stuff and live as if there isn't enough for everyone, this conversation will help and encourage you. This chat will, I wanna warn you, if this is a warning for you, 
will have more spiritual undertones than most of my chats, but don't let that deter you. No one is going to try to proselytize you or anything like that. Even if you have no spiritual leanings whatsoever, I think you're going to thoroughly enjoy this chat. Okay, I've talked for far too long. Here's my conversation with Father Danny Bryant and Professor and Urban Farmer Jason Adkins. Let's go. Thank you for coming to this podcast on Christmas Day. And thank you, Danny and Jason, my guests today, for joining me. Glad to be here. Thank you for having us. Okay, so I'm going to let Danny and, and Jason introduce themselves. You will recognize Jason's smooth jazz radio voice from a couple months ago. Two or three months ago, we did it together. Uh, we did. We did. A, uh, we had an amazing conversation. I truly enjoyed it. Still think about it all the time because there's so much gold in there. Uh, but you'll, yeah, you'll probably recognize his voice. And Danny, uh, well, I won't. He's my pastor, but I'll, I'll let him explain that here in a second. So why don't you introduce yourselves, fellas? We'll start with Jason. Who are you? What are you about? Let's start there. I'm Jason Adkins. I am a father of five, husband of one. I have a job farming in the city at a university, uh, at Trevec University. Um, the farm's called Trevec Urban Farm. And I also teach um, environmental justice and environmental theology and social justice classes at the university. So you're a farmer and a professor. Yes. Yes. Urban farming. Indeed. Urban right right farming. in the middle of the city. Like we're literally in the middle of Nashville. I mean, we're on the outskirts of like, we're not in downtown, but we're in the middle of the city. Yeah, we're one point three miles from the capital of Tennessee, excuse Tennessee, me, and, and, you're, uh, and you're farming. The heart of Nashville, yes. I love it. I love it. Danny, introduce yourself. My name is Danny Bryant. I'm the pastor at St. Mary of Bethany Parish here in Nashville. Yes. A little bit farther on the outskirts, but still Davidson County. Davidson County. And uh, what do you keep yourself busy with besides Candy Crush? Which besides. Is <laughs> I mean, you're, you're a priest that plays Candy Crush. A quite accomplished <laughs> Candy Crush player. Um, I have four kids um, and a wife. Her name is Rebecca, and they are all between the ages of 13, meaning my children. My wife yeah. is a year older All of your wives? Me. Yeah. That's horrible. Uh, but my kids are 13 through five, three boys and a girl, and that is what keeps me Yes, that keeps is busy. busy. A yeah. church and four kids. I have three. You have. Five. You said five, right? You have five, you have four. I have three, and I don't know what I'm doing with myself half the time. Um, it's a lot of work. You're a little older, Jason, right? Like, uh, yeah. sort of. My oldest daughter's turning 21 tomorrow, um, and wow. my youngest is 10. You're a lot further along than I than I thought. Mine are four, five, and six. Like, I feel I'm a newbie. Teach yeah, we, me, we Sensei. That's right. That's right. I need some help. No, we're doing fine, but it's it's completely and utterly overwhelming. It's the most humbling thing I've ever done. Can we all agree on that? Yeah. Becoming yeah. a parent is the most humbling thing. And I think getting beyond one, like, I don't know if you, you had this experience, but having one kid, I thought I was amazing. My, my first kid, like, started sleeping, you know, 12 hours through the night, like, at six weeks, solace. And we just, everything just worked. And then we had two, and we realized not so. And then we had three, which you're going from, you know, from man to man to zone, and you're just hanging on for dear life. And now I don't think I'm good at anything, and it's every day just like pleading with God and the universe for help and asking for forgiveness way more than I've ever done in my life. And um, but we're making it. Sounds like you're not playing enough Candy Crush. <laughs> I, I, speaking of video, we're people. We're going to get into a real conversation here in a minute, but I don't play games. 
I think I should play more. I should play more, literally. I should play more, but I don't. I've played probably, not that I advocate for like sitting in front of a, you know, playing video games all day long or any, like our, our culture is obsessed with that sort of a thing. And I'm not, I think that's mostly unhealthy, if not all unhealthy, but I've played probably two hours of video games in my life. Mm. Like that's it. Probably when I was growing up, I played literally cumulatively an hour of video games like Mario or whatever. I would just drop in and play a couple turns and then leave. And then a few years ago, my buddy, when Halo was a big thing, like eight years ago, he I walked into his apartment, he had Halo on. So he made me sit down for 45 minutes and play. And I hated every moment of it. I just didn't, I didn't see the draw. So that's my two hours of video games. And I don't think I've, I've never played Candy Crush or Farm or any of those video games. Again, maybe that's not all good because I don't, I continually get rebuked by my wife and by other people, lovingly rebuked, like, Nick, you need to play more. Just like, just stop and play. And and the world's gonna keep spinning. Like I always, even my downtime is very calculated. It's, it's, uh, and I feel bad if I have even one show that I keep up with, you know, it's like, no, I've got to read and learn more. And that's not really, I mean, it is downtime, it's relaxing, but I'm like cramming my brain and taking notes and underlining and dog earing. And it's not really a relaxing sort of a thing. So I'll get better at it. I promise. Confession time. Okay. We are here again, Christmas day. We're going to talk about the myth of scarcity. Um, A few weeks ago, our church here in Nashville, uh, Jason and his fam and his family are part of this church. Danny is the parish priest at this church. I'm a part of this church with our family, and we had this what do we call it? Common conversations. This sort of like forum to not. It wasn't like a church gathering, but we were talking about big issue: the myth of scarcity. I thought the conversation was fascinating. Jason was on the panel along with Mary Brown and Kelsey Miller, and we're going to talk. Kelsey's going to come up. Uh, in this conversation, because I thought it was so fascinating who she is and what she does for a living. It's pretty, I didn't even know it was a thing. So that'll come up at some point. But, and you moderated the discussion. We read some Wendell Berry, had some music. It was really, really fun. And I've been thinking about the implications of that conversation ever since. There's actually been, we won't talk about it on this podcast because that's a whole different therapy session for me. But there's been another part of my life that that the myth of scarcity became like a real, it became really evident um, and I've been working through that with my mentors and stuff. Cause I, it just like hit me like a ton of bricks and I was like, oh shit, like I'm, here's a whole big section of my life that is being held captive by this idea of scarcity. And ever since beginning to beat down that wall, it's been fun. It's been fun to kind of see how the different way I'm looking at life and decisions I'm making and stuff based on that. But, um, myth of scarcity before I ask you for your definition of the myth of scarcity, um, I have Jason here today. You, all of you on the podcast, you've heard Jason before. Um, very smart, very wise, uh, in that great, great voice to listen to. And and I brought him back for practical contributions to this conversation. Is how I how I wrote it down anyway. And I brought uh, my pastor Danny on for the spiritual contributions to this conversation because I think there is a spiritual element that even if you're listening and you aren't a spiritual person or don't adhere to the Christian faith you will be better off uh, by listening to it, I think. You can decide after the conversation's over. Jason, why don't we start with you? Give me like your elevator pitch for like what the myth of scarcity is. Don't get into any solutions yet, but just what, when this idea of the myth of scarcity, like what is that to you? Just for people that might be, it's not, we didn't make up that term. People talk about it in a lot of different realms, 
but what does that mean to you? So myth of scarcity, I, what comes to my mind is a set of ideas and pictures um, gathered around this um, conviction that there's not enough and we have to, we have to fight others to get what we need um, for sufficiency. So it's this, this idea, this driving kind of urge often out of view of our conscious thoughts that we have to fight for what we get. Um, mm. And so um, you asked for some practical visions of this, not, not solutions, but so w we feed our goats on the farm. I'm gonna use some homespun I love farm it. boy Go for it. analogies. Um, we feed our goats on the farm two ways. One is we graze them, and the other is that they're in a, a barnyard where we just feed them. And so off season, uh, when there's not as much grass, we tend to feed them more in the barnyard. And so it's really interesting when we're feeding them in terms of grazing is we, um, well, I'll start with the way we feed them in the barnyard. We've got certain feeders and we pour the, pour the feed in the feeders, hay and, and sunflower seeds. And so they, they, they fight over it. And the big ones always push the little ones away. They butt the other ones out mm -hmm. of the way. And some of the, the ones that are kind of lowest on the tough guy pole in the, sure. in the goat yard, they, they just kind of stand there and watch and sometimes like cry about like, I can't get to the food. And then once the big guys are full enough and they wander off, then the little guys will come and get what's left. But it's really wonderful to see when we open up a new field and there's a quarter acre of just open field and they all just fan out and they eat grass because it's it's just abundant there and they don't have to there's they don't have to fight over it and so they fan out there's no fighting they just eat right and um so we have like demonstrations of the myth of scarcity or the, the realities of like scarcity and abundance in, in our barnyard oh i always think about it when i when i graze and there's nothing quite as wonderful as just opening up a, a pasture and just letting the goats just go out and just they're they're skipping, they're happy, yeah. and then nobody's fighting. Yeah, nobody's fighting. Danny, do you uh, have anything to add to that kind of opening monologue on scarcity? I have a question. Yeah. Can I ask Jason a question? You may. Um, Please do. What prevents you from always having them in the field? If that makes sense. Like, what? I'm just curious, like, for the illustration, like, when do they need to be grazing in a space that unleashes? The competition yeah i i think it's mismanagement that's that's the mm. that's the answer to that if i were properly managing i'm sorry the, <laughs> <laughs> no it's it's true if i were properly managing grass they'd never have to fight each other um we, we're kind of in a more constrained environment in, sure in right the we're in the middle of city for sure is small but, but um ideally like they're on new grass every day of the year um and that's that's so it's a man it's a, it's a management problem there's so many word pictures i mean there's so many parallels to that and our current reality there is so much but a lot of it is if you look at all the injustices and the things happening in our it just if you know i would say that the most most people listening to this podcast are in america of 70 percent of them are in america so like if you just look at our current structure like a lot of the things like pick your poison name your injustice name your thing and so much of it is exactly what you just said, mismanagement. And add humble to your descriptions of Jason that he, yes. he immediately yes. took 
uh, took yeah took the yeah, responsibility. Yeah. And I think I wonder also if there's an element of the scarcity of time in that, which I think is part of this conversation as well. The myth of scarcity, yes, for resources, but also for time. Um, I think it's ironic that we live in a culture that would say we have two days off. You know, this like Judeo-Christian where we get Saturday and Sunday, uh, but overworked society where time is scarce and resources are scarce, if scarcity is true. Um, but the mismanagement, I just think that, I don't know, I was really taken as Jason described that to see the, the problem in how we do things and the time. And um, so the idea of the myth of scarcity comes from an essay for me from Walter Brueggemann. It's the myth of, myth of scarcity and the liturgy of abundance. And if you are not familiar with the word liturgy, it's, it's the work of the people, often described in how we come together for worship. It's not a service where we're entertained, but it's, it's something where we come together to work for um, this time together. So the liturgy of abundance is um, the opposite of the myth of scarcity is how do we manage how do we steward, how do we cultivate the abundance that exists in the world in a way that doesn't feed the myth of scarcity, in admitting that we are part of a world where there is enough for all of us if we are not greedy, where there is enough for us. Even those goats that don't get in on the first blades of grass when the other guys are, are fed, there is enough for them. They just didn't believe that right away. Um, but time told the story. And so I think... Brueggemann's essay is is my connection to it. And then just seeing, I think there's a book by William Cavanaugh called Being Consumed. And he, he begins the book by talking about our misunderstanding of economics, this whole philosophy and, and um, discipline of economics out of the gate says, how do we handle scarce resources? Because it is a given in our imaginations that resources are scarce. And I th don't think that's true. There are seasons of famine. There are seasons where things sure. don't grow as well. But um, our fear of no one sharing when that happens is um, capitalized on to unleash that fear farther into the world where if we trusted each other, if we believed that the people who it's good for right now will share for us when our mm. downtime comes, um, I think we'd be able to live in the liturgy of abundance and steward and share and have joy um, that we don't have because we believe the myth of scarcity. So when we had this conversation a few weeks ago, Kelsey Miller was up on the, the panel and she is a gleaner, which yes. I didn't know wasn't, I mean, I understand the word glean, um, but I probably, I mean, I don't think about that word often and I didn't know it was an actual thing. Jason, um, can you relay her anecdote that she shared and really even give context to what a gleaner does. I mean, I think it's self-explanatory, but what is a gleaner? And what was, she shared some really, and you don't have to go with exact amounts if you forget those amounts, but like, what was the story that she shared where she was introduced to, yeah, this really visual picture of how much there is how much stuff there is, how much, you know what I'm saying? Can you relay that to those of us that weren't there? Yeah, I think this will draw us into the heart of the realities exactly. of what we're talking about too. So the big picture context is worldwide. It looks like the best estimates are 
that we waste, throw away 1.2 up to 2 billion tons of food every year. Um, a ton could- Say that one more yeah, time. So roughly the amount that could be piled into the back of a full-size pickup truck, 1.2 billion of those, up to 2 billion of those trucks are simply thrown away. Somewhere from the field to our garbage cans in our kitchen, that food gets wasted worldwide. It also happens to be more than enough food to feed every hungry person in the world. So there's less than a billion hungry people in the world. You think about those, those trucks pulling up at those homes. Um, it would be more than enough to feed them all year. So it's an incredible, staggering statistic. In the United States, um, the statistics have been climbing where we're thinking it's closer to 50% of the food that's either grown here or brought here is wasted. When you think about the goat, the goat um, analogy, you know, it's not that that food isn't there, but it's locked away in places that the hungry can't get it. Mm -hmm. So we don't have a food production problem. We have a distribution problem. Mm. And that's actually useful to cash economics, even though it's not useful to solving world hunger. Um, because um, remember, it, like in, in the economic realm, the first rule is supply and demand. If mm -hmm. you have too much of something, it actually undermines the yeah. price for it. So abundance is a problem in a cash economy. And so sometimes it pays to simply not harvest a, an abundant thing or just turn it under. And, and a lot of the farmers in Tennessee are in this position and they contact the Society of St. Andrews who will come and glean this food with volunteers and give it to people who are hungry. And this particular story was of a sweet potato farmer. A sweet potato farmer came and said, look, these sweet potatoes are too big. Now they're perfectly edible. Yeah. I've grown sweet potatoes that were massive before. And they're delicious. Nothing wrong Nothing with them. Wrong with they them. just don't meet the market demand. Yep. Somebody walks into a supermarket and sees a, a basically a small football yeah. that, and they're not gonna buy it. Yeah. Um, they taste great. So he couldn't sell them because they were too small. And this is a very common problem. I have mm -hmm. another gleaner friend who says he gets truckloads of perfectly good watermelons because they're the wrong size. And so it, it be, this is very common, part of the high, high waste statistics. And so basically there were hundreds of thousands of pounds of these sweet potatoes in the field and they could, you know, they could only glean so many. The rest were simply turned into the soil, which is better than landfilling them um, because they get they get taken up by the soil biology again, but it just seems like a tremendous waste. I mean, if I remember the story correctly, she was at one field with this farmer and he gave some number. It was a, maybe, I think it was a hundred thousand pounds or something of like something crazy like that. And then she was overwhelmed by that. Yeah, I think it was a hundred thousand. And then he said, well, I've got two more fields just like that. So he had 300,000 pounds. And I think when, when you, you asked her how much did she was she able to glean, they only they were only able to take like 20 or 30,000 pounds. So a 10th of what was available and the rest, I assume just rotted away, right? And that's three fields in rural Tennessee, one state, one county in one state of one country where farming is a, you know, a big a big industry. That's ridiculous, right? That's just ridiculous. Um did you have anything to it's add? Because it wasn't marketable. Right, which is that's a whole that's a whole other I mean, conversation. That's, yeah, but also, I mean, I, I a whole other and I think the heart of it is economics. We live in a culture. We literally we Photoshop our food. Yeah, 
and and this idea of this we do the same thing with lives that we do to our sweet potatoes you're not marketable you don't fit this look you don't fit fit this ideal and so you're useless um and this this tragic waste we do it to humans too and so like the, our marketing of everything including our sweet potatoes that kind of marketing depends on us believing things are scarce and it's just this cycle that goes over and over again whose um, fault is that is that capitalism's fault is that the heart of man and woman what's the problem here that we will look at a ginormous amazing sweet potato and say that can't go on a shelf it won't look good so we're just going to toss it when they could have made money like that's the fun, odd thing is that like they could make money i don't know i don't personally that that's probably not true i don't really run in the same circles of people that would look at that sweet potato or that watermelon or that anything and say nah i'm not going to eat that like everybody i know or at least I would hope so. I hope you two would walk and be like, that's fine. I'll buy it. Like, I'm not gonna pay, I'm gonna pay whatever you charge me. Like sweet potatoes, you buy them by the pound, right? So it doesn't matter what size it is. Like, that's just so absurd to me, but it's a real, real thing. So that you can walk in and find, you know, at the Kroger and there's a hundred sweet potatoes in the the barrel or the shelf, and they're all relatively within a half an inch the same size. Like, what does that even it doesn't make it doesn't compute with me. I think it speaks to a lack of creativity that back to the liturgy of abundance. Do we have time to think about a creative way to eat a sweet potato that doesn't look like a perfect little football that we're not cultivating the liturgy of abundance. Mm. We're living in the myth of scarcity where it feels too expensive time wise. It feels too expensive. Like we don't give each other space to work this abundance. Um, we live in these places with real constraints. Like there are constraints of like when you can let the goats into the field. This isn't pretend. I mean, we, we could get a little too detached from reality, sure. but um, the big picture I think is, is a lack of creativity that is fueled by this conviction that is rooted in a lie that there is not enough for all of us. That love sweet potatoes, <laughs> clothes, All whatever it is. Yeah. It's like, I have to get mine because no one's going to look out for me. Um, and it feeds, I think, what things have to look like. I don't mean that as a platitude, but you know, just think about like the pressure. Even a podcast like this, I think people listen and they feel pressure to then go do dinner right. Sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, like, yeah. and it's more shame and it's like it, mm -hmm. it can – the guilt and the shame can stifle – the creativity that's needed and the liturgy of abundance is also saying there's space for you to like take a step back and go slowly and it won't be fixed tomorrow mm. but we can we can slowly change the course of a ship um, through little acts of fidelity what you just said i think is hugely important and i love the scattered nature of this conversation because we're going to go all over but that the little acts of fidelity and just the allowing ourselves to not get it right I'm always encouraging the Let's Give a Damn family to constantly be thinking about how they're giving a damn and the different ways they're doing that. But I'm always encouraging them to not feel, it's so easy to feel shame or like I'm not doing enough because there's always more shit to do. There's always more people that are being hurt. 
that are being taken advantage of. Like this past week alone, I've wanted to be in 10 different places, right? I thought so much about going to the Southern border to protest, right? And to stand with these people during this really, really, really hard time. I thought about, I still have, I have a buddy who moved to uh, uh, Puerto Rico, moved his family there so they could not just like drop in and be, but to spend their dollars there and be part of the economy and to help them rebuild. Like I go him, I have a friend in Haiti, They're, they need a lot of help. So like even just this past week, I felt the weight of wanting to be all over the place. And instead I continue to do, you know, I didn't go to any of those. I have a family. It's a busy season for us. I'm I'm building three businesses right now. Like I've got a lot to do. And I chose to not do those things. And it would have been fine if I did them, I think, all three of those. But to know that like I'm doing, at least for right now, and maybe in January, I have to go to one of these things, right? Like I need to say, I need to go and stand with these people or help or come alongside or build. But right now, the faithful thing to do was to be here, to be with my family, to continue to build these things. And um, I'm always trying to communicate that. And I love that. Um, can you talk a little bit, the little acts of, what did you say? The little- Little acts of fidelity. Little acts of fidelity. Talk more about that. I think, I know you did a little bit, but like, what does it look like to not feel shame and the pressure to always be doing this, that, or the other, but also not ignore all the things that are happening? I think it's to admit that we are creatures and to admit that we're part of a web and not um, a universe unto ourselves. I'm sorry, I was at the skate center. I told you I had four kids. So I was at yeah. a birthday party at the skate center um, Saturday morning, which is where I get my pop music fix <laughs> until the next birthday party at the skate center. But there was this like starships are made to fly, like put your hands in the air and touch the sky. But there was a lyric that says like, it's my universe. I'm so glad you came. Maybe I'm getting too, I'm getting too, but welcome to my universe. I'm so glad you came. Mm. That is evil. Yeah. Like, this is not my universe, and it's not your universe. And because it's not your universe, you don't have to go to the border in Puerto Rico and be home for dinner. We're creatures, mm. and, and this universe belongs to one who, who I believe is faithful to provide. But frustratingly, he shares through us. <laughs> um, maybe that's not the creator's wisest choice, but he <laughs> has chosen to share through us, and we don't do that well. But the little acts of fidelity, I think, are admitting I'm a creature and I'm part of a web that if I do my part, if I do my job and I can trust others to do their job, um, the fidelity will grow from there um, and build little beacons of hope, I think, through neighborhoods. And if the neighborhood begins to take care of each other, that care goes on and on. Um, I don't think it's largely going to come from those with power. It's going to be the marginalized connecting. We're in the Advent season right now, and I think we, we talked about this this Sunday, but when John the Baptist's father was a priest and he was um, an upper middle class person, and when an angel told him that his son would announce the coming reign of God through the Messiah, he sung a song of the poor. Like he hmm. saw the coming of Jesus announced by his son John as um, fidelity going into the world. And he realized, I will have to give some of mine 
for the fidelity to go forward, but that's what the kingdom means. And so when people invest in their neighborhoods and, and get to know their neighbors and um, invest in their neighbors and share with their neighbors and are shared with and create the vulnerability of, I'm out of eggs, could I have an egg? You know, that, that interdependence is allowed to exist. Um, and I think the healing comes through the vulnerability and then that, that has the potential to expand um, beyond borders, beyond nations in a more beautiful way, a more organic way. I love that. For millions of years, back when there's cavemen and saber-toothed tigers and shit like that, like there, there, was, a, there was a long time when it was more of a zero-sum game than it is now. If you have something, I have less. So, or this, this fight or flight, like survival of the fittest, always a, you know, uh, if, if the saber-toothed tiger is eating you, then he's not eating me. So like, there's always this competition going on. And if, like, if I have more, you have less, if you have, like, there was a little bit more of that, like there was more things that could hurt you and take you out. And we don't have the technology we do today. We've come a long way in other words, right? There's been, I think there were different seasons of of the history of the world that were, you were a little more exposed to uh, maybe danger in the elements. And there was more of a survivor like nature, right? Would you agree? I don't know. Okay. That's the picture I'm painting. I'll trust, I'll trust that's in the, your that's, expertise. That's the picture I'm painting. When there were cyber tooth. Yeah. I wasn't there. Yeah. But what I'm getting at is if that's all true and there were more volatile times in history uh, because lack of technology or lack of uh, ingenuity and you know we have a lot of machines and technology and things working for us and with us today, a lot of that stuff is not true anymore. We have so much more. I'm not going to walk outside this building and wonder if some, you know, X, Y, or Z animal is going to take me out or somebody's going to uh, shoot me for my stuff. You know, like that's just not probably not going to happen. It's a whole different world now. So why do we still live as though it is a zero sum game that if, if you have more than I have less, why do we still function that way? Even though there's plenty for all, that's what I'm getting at that long, Saber-tooth <laughs> yeah, the saber-tooth yeah. tire thing was to get to the question of, I know there, I know that there are people that are disadvantaged. I'm not, I'm not trying to put us all on an even playing field. That is not the case. If anybody listens to my podcast, I know that there are so many people that are not on the same playing field. But by and large, we're in a much different place than a thousand, ten thousand, hundred thousand, whatever, however far you want to go back in your worldview. Um, there's plenty for all, but we still act as if. Jason, if you get a promotion or if you get a bigger this or if you get more of that, if you become a this, then I have less, even though that's literally not the case. But why do why do you think we live that way and function that way and work that way and internally process and externally process that way? So I think if we don't have community, then we feel vulnerable. And okay. I know Mother Teresa talked about loneliness being the leprosy of the West, you know, in our isolation, in our sort of, sort of the pinnacle of our wealth has drawn us into these little cul-de-sac prisons where we have all the things and yet possess nothing. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I think we've lost each other. I think people who really live in community feel like even if I lose stuff, I've got people who will take care of me, right? But when it's just us against the world, I think that's a very lonely place and we're 
very vulnerable to a message of scarcity. Um, and I think scarcity is very profitable. Like this, when you have people who are very possessed of a sense of scarcity, then it's easy to sell them things. Like we, we become really good consumers when we always feel a lack in ourselves and are told constantly, apparently about 5,000 times a day, we're, we're advertised to. Yeah. And so we're, and when we're watching these screens, often our brain waves are at a, about the level when we're sleeping. So we're really not critically assessing all the advertisements that are telling us you're not enough. You don't look good enough. You don't look young enough. You are not wealthy enough. You need our product. Um, in order to be enough. Um, we're really not screening that. I mean, it's like our our psyche's taking a, a, a punch in the face without even lifting a hand. Mm. And so this constant message of not being enough um, makes us real obedient consumers. Um, but it doesn't leave us with a sense of abundance, with a sense of health. And, and I have not seen a correlation between possessions and a sense of abundance. I have seen precisely the opposite. Yep. In the cultures I've lived and traveled in, it is often the poorest cultures that are rich in community who do not seem desperate for more. So true. Um, and are much more open to give and to share and to be present. And when you see the wealthiest cultures, they are closed off, suspicious. Um, that is almost a rule. In, in my experience. So when we talk about scarcity and abundance, we're not necessarily, it might mean that someone does well financially, right? But that's not really what we're getting at. It's more a heart life attitude change, right? Because you have this monk that lives in a monastery or some family that lives in the slums in you know, uh, Hyderabad, India, just so happy, so fulfilled. And then you have this uber wealthy, I just, I, I don't know his name. I, I just heard, it was an anecdote on a podcast, but it, this guy that was worth like $400 million and he killed himself because he lost out on a business deal that would have been worth like a, like a lot more. But he had $400 million and he killed himself, just done, gone, because it, he couldn't get more, right? So you have the person that's perfectly happy, like internally, externally, everything happy with nothing. Then you have the guy that takes his life because he couldn't get to that next level, the billion. The bi that's what it was. Was he? I'm sorry, I'm getting like he was a billionaire, lost it, lost a lot of money, went down to 400 million, and because he lost the B and went to M, it wasn't worth it anymore. Even though he still had more money than he could ever spend in his life, so it is deeper than having. We're not talking about having more stuff. We're talking about contentment. We're talking which would then lead us to be generous and generosity. I mean, yeah. I think that's what generosity grows out of community and often generosity grows having less than having more. And so we had, um, we partnered with a few other churches a few years ago to celebrate Pentecost, which is this feast of all the nations of the world um, coming together through in the love of God through his spirit. And we thought it would be um, a fun idea to have a multicultural pr party with food from all over the world. So there was... Um, an African church and a, um, a Nepali church and a Burmese church. And then there was uh, a predominantly white church. And we said, bring food. We didn't say to share or not to share. We just said, bring, bring food. food. 
the people from the predominantly white churches or church that came stopped by like Subway on the way and either ate before they came or or brought brought a sandwich for themselves. All of the other people brought food to share. And I think that was such a like a very vivid so convicting of the people with the most didn't think about sharing. And the people with the least wouldn't have dreamed about coming without something to share. There's something stifling to creativity. There's something stifling to generosity, um, stifling to fidelity in this abundance that is just masterfully masked. And then the numbness that has to exist to stay unaware enough to believe the lie that the next thing we buy will get rid of this emptiness. We have to be numb to believe that. Um, We have to not be in touch with the suffering of the world to believe that. And so we close ourselves off from the cries of the poor. We're looking at a quote from Dorothy Day in this room. And she says, by crying out unceasingly for the rights of the workers, of the poor, of the destitute, we can throw our pebble in the pond and be confident that its ever-widening circle will reach around the world. Mm. Um, If we are living lives that don't cry out for those who have less than us, we'll start to believe we're the, we're the poor ones, we're the impoverished ones, we're the oppressed ones. Um, we have to be in contact with this interdependent web of humanity um, in order to stay grateful, in order to be generous. Like it, This doesn't grow in isolation. I wanna get political for a second. We're in a very volatile, not great political season. <laughs> uh, there's other words I could use, but we'll just leave it at not great. Um, Christmas? Yeah, that's it. That's that's what I'm talking about. Things are very, I mean, p- more polarized than ever. And I'm not a historian. I think I can safely say this is a this is either one of the or the most polarized seasons of American life. It's very very bad. A lot of what we just talked about could come across to a lot of people as anti-capitalist or pro if we're talking in government terms and kind of the structure of government and citizens and so on and so forth could come across as like anti-capitalist and some version of socialism like let's all share because when you know rising tide rates all ships let's let's make sure everybody has enough which i that's my heart like i want to share and i want people to have enough and it hurts me when i can't help the people around me like my neighbors and the people around the world like i want i want that to be a reality but for the, the myth of scarcity and the liturgy of abundance, for that to sort of take place, whether someone's religious or not, take religion and spirituality out of the equation, just citizens living together, wanting to see each other succeed, how does that happen best in your mind? Like what sort of a private citizen and government and everything structure would it take to for us to get closer to that? I guess what I'm asking is if you could snap your fingers and make things a certain way, whether that's a a political affiliation or just how we are with each other, what would that look like? I don't want to be confrontational. And I think it is awful right now. But over 600,000 people died in a war when Americans fought against Americans. It's been worse. That's good. And another lie is that we have to take sides, which I is also true, but maybe not the sides that we're told we have Mm. to take. And so I think we have to like 
really slow down on the rhetoric. And I, I don't know how informed we are historically all the time. Um, it's been way worse. It's bad. And it seems like some people might want to take us to the worst that we've experienced. But I think not believing the people that want us to be afraid. Mm. I think if, if that would probably be my hope, like a more discerning ear. And if we could stop and say, does the person telling me what I should think, um, is fear a prerequisite for their philosophy? And if it is, then it's not true because I don't have to be afraid. If we could stop believing people who want us to be afraid and get to know the people who live around us, I think that's how it heals. And um, actually listen and get to know, um, you know, like this Sunday, people who voted for Trump and people who voted for Hillary Clinton will will kneel to receive the meal Jesus gave us Mm. together. And if that meal could continue to another meal and people could listen and talk, we would all learn from each other. The person that I was most concerned about not loving the conversation we had um, at St. Mary's a few months ago, loved it. Mm. And it was somebody that I thought they're going to think we're trying to, br- <laughs> to bring yeah. a left-wing liberal agenda to this church. Yeah, We ate lunch together and they're like, that was amazing. Like, we want to help glean. And so mm. our our conviction that we've figured it all out and we know what they think and we know that they're like and they're the enemy, like, it's not true. Yeah. And and we're all more complicated um, and more simple than uh, our stereotypes allow us to be or not be. I don't know. But, but stop being afraid and get to know the people that live on your street mm-hmm. um, and watch that ripple effect. Yeah, I was watching the last Avengers movie, um, and spoiler alert, like there's a moment at which like there's a character that snaps his fingers and half the people on the planet die. Oh, perfect. Big spoiler. Big spoiler. I thought, yeah, I watched that, I was like, isn't it cool how that's not how the universe is set up? Mm. That somebody can snap their fingers and that happens. Um, and just as you know, we have patiently drummed into ourselves with our complicity, with those forces that tell us we're not enough. We've done that for many, many years. There's no fast undoing of that kind of psychic um, trauma, slow trauma of scarcity that's been drummed into us by those who profit from it. I think some some snap your finger things that I'm glad I can't do um, <laughs> would be eliminate all fossil fuel extraction today. That would have an incredibly disruptive Good thing. Yeah. Um, and deadly in a lot of ways uh, effect on our society short term. Long term, we would have to relocalize, which means we would be in touch with our sufficiencies, right? And uh, Wendell Berry said something, a couple things. Um, one he said thing, a lot of things. He, he said, he, he said <laughs> so good. A lot. Keep going. He said um, that when those who supply your necessities don't know you and don't love you, you are not safe and you are not free. And I think the mm. goal of the industrial economy has to be to lengthen the supply chain. So now we get food, it's at least on average 1,400 miles away, but frequently in different countries. And we feel the insecurity of that position, of our lives depending on things from people we don't know. Yep. 
um, in places that are exploited. Um, and the carbon footprint of that is, is, is shortening the life of our biosphere or changing it dramatically. So um, what if we had localism? Like what if we, all the food we needed, all the materials we needed were, were local except for some rarities that were traded um, with the surplus? Um, that would give us a totally different relationship with our necessities um, and our neighbors that would change dramatically the way we felt about community and sufficiency and eight pound sweet potatoes. Yeah, so there's, there's um, one thing I think that would be interesting is, is the way we're set up right now. I'm not sure that we shouldn't feel a sense of anxiety um, because our system is very precarious, very vulnerable to shocks. To me, one of the biggest issues here is inequity. There was a really interesting article that came out in The Atlantic that was talking about how inequity and fascism tend to go together hmm. um, through history, is that when there were really deep inequities in a society, that it, a society could be vulnerable to drift toward fascism. And so when you're talking about the worrisome political um, goings on right now, I think, I think we need to look at economic inequity. When I started looking at this 10 years ago, I think you could get half of the world's wealth could fit into a, a pretty large room. Then about six years ago, it was, it was 40 some people. And then a couple years ago, I saw that eight people in the world have half of the world's wealth. Um, that's astonishing. Yeah. And it's not something people think about a lot. But when I see the root of a lot of the problems that are, exist now, the disparities between us, the, the distance and the unbridgeable um, misunderstandings and, and enmity between peoples, um, there's a lot of inequity at the root mm. of that. And, a, and a, this sense like people have been left behind. And if you give me someone to scapegoat, then, then I'll, I'll vote for you. There, there's this woman named Christina Cleveland, and um, she, did, she did this research with another colleague about um, self-esteem and racism. So they gave these students um, some tests, and um, th they were basically told them, we're gonna do a self-esteem uh, study. Oh, and by the way, we're gonna ask you to do another couple things. They gave half of the participants fake IQ uh, results that told them that they were a lot less intelligent than they thought they were. Mm. And right after them, this, they gave them this, um, they said, oh, by the way, we'd like you to evaluate these two people for a job and just tell us how, how qualified you think they are. The qualifications were very similar. They were meant to be equivalent. But one of the women had a Star of David on her chest. So she was identified subtly as, as Jewish. The group that had been told that they weren't as smart as they thought had a tremendously significant, a lower evaluation of the Jewish woman as a qualified candidate. The people with self, good self-esteem felt roughly the same about the both candidates, right? And afterward, the students that had discriminated against the Jewish woman had the biggest jump in self-esteem since they started the whole semester-long test. Wow. So there's a huge payoff for people who feel beat down and left behind for discriminating against another person. It doesn't come simply out of bigotry, but it comes with this sense that this connection between self-esteem and um, an ability to kind of like extend uh, equity to other people. And so I, I think we need to think about who's been left behind in, in our society 
And um, yeah, I, I think that's, a, that's a, a really important aspect we don't think a lot about. Yeah, that's really great. And I know that we could talk forever and ever on this stuff. Uh, maybe we'll have a much longer unedited version of this at some point, because I know that you all have, you both have a lot to teach me and to teach us for sure. Let's do sort of uh, closing arguments, as it were, uh, even though nobody's arguing for any, <laughs> but we, we all agree. As we wrap up here, just a reminder, there are the people listening to this podcast are all over the political spectrum, the economic spectrum. There's young people, there's old people. But the one thing that everybody listening has in common is they want to make the world a better place. And I hear these stories all the time. Every day I get a message, whether it's through email or through direct message on Twitter or message on Instagram or a text message or some or someone in person telling me that these stories mean so much to them and that they really, really help them figure out how to give a damn in a better way. So knowing that about these amazing individuals listening and based on the conversation we just had about the myth of scarcity and the in the work of abundance, right? There is there is enough for all of us and taking into consideration everything we've talked about. What do you want to say? What do you want to say to them about this uh topic as we close up? So I I think you asked more like what can people do? I I would say the number one thing I hope people could do is grow a garden. When you grow a garden, it is astonishing the yield of a tiny little seed. You know, we were looking around at seeds and one plant was produ- produced over 100,000 seeds um, that you can then take and make a forest of, of, of this, happened to be a New England aster. You get to have a practical relationship with the abundance of creation. Mm. So growing a garden, um, it also makes you competent in a, in a small necessity that sure. allows you to see, oh, maybe we don't need multinational companies to feed us. I mean, this could happen in my yard. Yeah. Um, and the second thing I think would be to keep um, what Jews and Christians would call a Sabbath, a day where you simply stop buying things, you stop feeling the need to be productive, and you welcome... Um, your creatureliness, something Danny, I think, was was gesturing at, um, this sense that it's a really big world and I'm just a small part of it. Mm. Um, I think the willingness to stop and simply be and be present would be a profound move against this sense of insufficiency and scarcity and a profound um, welcome to our... Um, our position of abundance, the abundance of time. Mm. That's really great. I don't know how to articulate it. I, I think like cultivate practices that push back against shame and fear because I think those are essential ingredients to the myth of scarcity. There's a shame connected to all of this. There's a lyric and it's, it's, a, it's about marriage, but in the last Killers album, it's a song called For the Life to Come. And I think if we think about For the Life to Come, from after this podcast it's just a simple and he sings to his wife and it says um have a little faith in me and dropkick the shame um when we return to the old patterns that lead us to distrust and fear and self-preservation and isolation we just don't do community well and so whatever practice that is like find something that you can do to make you get out of those shame spirals 
to get out of the fear spirals, I think that that tends to be where a lot of the unhealthy stuff grows. And again, I, I think we've both said this, like community is where those things often get sick, but healthy community is where they can heal and grow. So be part of a healthy community that helps you get out of those spirals. Very thankful for you both. Thank you so much for your contributions to this conversation. I know that everyone listening is going to enjoy it, learn from it. Uh, so thanks for giving of your time. You're awesome. We'll do it again another time. Thank you. Thanks so much for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed and were encouraged and challenged by this conversation. Now, make the appropriate changes in your heart, soul, and actions. To find more information and all web and social media links for this podcast conversation, go to podcast.letsgiveadam.com. As always, and I mean it, as always, thank you for the ways that you continue to support this show. As a gift to me and the team, would you consider doing one or more of the following right now as we wrap up the year? Would you tell a friend about the show? Would you consider leaving a five-star rating and review on Apple Podcasts? Would you consider giving a few dollars each month to help us make the show by visiting patreon.com slash let's give a damn? This podcast episode was edited and produced by the incredible Chad Snavely. The music is by our brilliant artist and friend, Propaganda. Thank you so much for joining me. Last episode of the year. It's been a wild ride. Can't wait for 2019. I love you all. Same day, same time next week. Peace.